Listen and follow the Left Wing Rugby podcast with me, Will Slattery and Luke Fitzgerald. As far as I can see, I always want to get in the Irish team. And that should be every young player's dream and ambition in this country. And if you're playing in a place where you're not going to get the opportunities in the big games, that they're the ones that get you picked. They are the ones, the Champions Cup games are the ones that get you picked. You need to be playing in a team and starting in a team for those games. It's as simple as that if you want to play in the Irish team. Every week on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Heman Sunim, telling us what to do when things don't go your way. When we are, you know, very young and have a first love and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. We begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. When I got out to the Wicklow Mountains, when I came to the end of the line, I I felt this sinking feeling in the pit of my stomach. I'm Nicola Tallent, and every week you can hear stories about criminals, drugs and the sins of the underworld on my podcast, Crime World. This was a stitch-up from start to end. I talk to those who get up close and personal with gangsters, mobsters and notorious criminals. They have taught in every conceivable way of disguising cocaine. Crime World is available wherever you get your podcasts. In her opening statement at the trial of Ghislaine Maxwell, U.S. prosecutor Lara Pomerantz pulled no punches. Make no mistake, she knew what Epstein was going to do. He did not abuse alone. She was in the room for the abuse. She preyed on vulnerable young girls, manipulated them, and served them up to be sexually abused. She was in on it from the start. The defendant and Epstein lured their victims with a promise of a bright future only to sexually exploit them. And where Pomerantz used words like preyed and abused, Maxwell's lead defence lawyer, Bobby Sternham, used terms like scapegoat and target. Ever since Eve was blamed for tempting Adam with an apple, women have been blamed for things men have done. She is not Jeffrey Epstein. She is not anything like Jeffrey Epstein. Jeffrey Epstein manipulated the world around him and the people around him, including Ghislaine. Ghislaine Maxwell is on trial as a scapegoat for Epstein. So, scapegoat or sex trafficker, that's what a jury must decide in the trial of Ghislaine Maxwell. It's expected to last six weeks and joining me today to talk me through the life and times of Ghislaine Maxwell and with the focus on the trial itself is Sarah Cadden, Sunday Independent columnist. Sarah Cadden, who is Ghislaine Maxwell? Ghislaine Maxwell is the youngest daughter of Robert Maxwell, who died at the start of the 90s, but was very well known through the decade before that as owner of, uh, he was a publisher of the Mirror Group, he owned Macmillan Books, a lot of other uh, properties, very, very wealthy, very larger than life character. She was the youngest child born on Christmas Day. She'll be 60 this Christmas. And she was born a couple of days before one of her siblings was in a road accident that proved fatal and grew up in her early years in a very sort of 
grief-stricken situation. And then as a as a toddler, her mother tells a story where Ghislaine turned around at one point at three years of age and said, I exist. And the mother suddenly kind of realised I have neglected this child. And out of that went full circle and uh, ended up saying that Ghislaine was the only one of her children to be spoiled. So she was, by all accounts, even those who kind of criticise her now, quite a charismatic, sparkling, clever person who's great company, um, went to Oxford, did very well for herself and was devastated when her father died in 1991. He drowned off a boat, his boat, which was called Lady Ghislaine, uh, off the Canaries. Always mystery around his death. Did he jump? Was he pushed? Was he involved with Mossad, who were scared that he was going to you know, sell them out? Um, was he just urinating over the side of the boat and slipped? Because that seemed to be something that he did. And... Um, after he died, it emerged that he had used the pension funds of his companies to shore them up because they were in more trouble than anybody knew. And that led to the, the name becoming kind of mired in scandal. And just, I mean, it, it destroyed a lot of people's lives that they lost their pensions as a result of Robert Maxwell's behaviour. Because as you said at the beginning, Sarah, I mean, he was quite a, a larger than life kind of character. And um, there's that that brilliant clip, um, the Desert Island Discs, where um, Michael Parkinson is asking him, you know, what he would leave behind. And of course, he very proudly goes on about all the good things he did for everybody across the world. And then almost in the same breath uh, says that, yes, perhaps he could have spent a little bit more time with his family. Now, at the end of the day, when you've, when you've gone through this life, as you've described it, what then is the accolade? What is the achievement at the end of it? The achievement at the end of it is that I feel that my life, which I'm continuing to live to the full and will do so until the day I die, I will have left the world a slightly better place by having lived in it and have influenced a few things and people in the right direction, rather if, as if it hadn't mattered whether I were born, lived or died. So there's, we, have, we have all these kind of contradictions going on in terms of um, how the Maxwell family operated and um, what made Ghislaine Ghislaine. And then, as you say, after he died, um, the name was sullied somewhat, and she was kind of urged to stay in the US, wasn't she? Apparently so. The family felt that the name was so tarnished in the UK that she should stay in the US. And there has been a suggestion in the last couple of days that she knew Epstein before her father died and that her father may have, in, you know, introduced her to him. But, you know, if in these situations where people choose to kind of put a narrative around people's lives. Uh, it, it's kind of portrayed in a way that she went from one extremely powerful, charismatic man to another, Jeffrey Epstein. Initially, for years, she seems to have been in an, a romantic relationship with him, but that then changed, changed to a business relationship where she managed his multiple properties and his very busy travel schedule and this and that. And obviously, the charges now pertain to whether she 
conspired with him to um, bring girls into his circle whom he would then sexually abuse. And it's a, a, an interesting point because we, we think about uh, Ghislaine Maxwell as a genteel socialite, grew up in a, a mansion with 151 rooms and, you know, must have been uh, absolutely rolling in the cash. But that wasn't the case, was it, in her? I mean, if she ends up working for Epstein, and I know there's kind of a, a grey area there, was she the girlfriend or the employee? But she she didn't have the finances people thought she had, did she? Well, she had what he did not have. He had buckets of money, but she had connections and she had the manner and the upbringing that would allow her to move in certain circles very seamlessly with powerful people because he had he didn't have any of these connections. He probably didn't have what especially Americans would perceive as class that she would have as somebody with a posh English accent. And so she, I mean, people refer to her giant Rolodex and the amazing parties that she threw and how she could just charm the birds out of the trees. Now, she sounds like she was quite outrageous and that was something that people found kind of attractive in in New York. Um, There is one account of a party that the theme of it was to do with teaching people how to perform certain sexual acts and that there was a sex toy at everybody's place sitting. But everybody kind of thought, oh, Ghislaine, you know, she's so outrageous. Um, But then at the same time, she was front row at Chelsea Clinton's wedding. So she, you know, she was this person with an incredibly easy manner, it would seem, around people, very confident. And she was able to introduce Epstein to the kind of people that he wanted to be introduced to. And she was a friend of of Prince Andrew. She introduced um, Epstein to Prince Andrew. And as Prince Andrew said in that Newsnight uh, interview, people like that do want to rub shoulders with people like him. So that's kind of what Ghislaine Maxwell could do for rich New Yorkers was introduce them to posh people. <laughs> and of course, um, the Epstein years and, you know, Epstein himself died in prison in 2019. And we've been bombarded uh, with documentaries um, left, right and centre telling us the story of Jeffrey Epstein. And Ghislaine Maxwell plays a very prominent role in that story, doesn't she? I was terrified and I was telling him to stop. Jeffrey Epstein is dead, but the consequences of his crimes live on. For more than a decade, he used his money and power to abuse hundreds of young women, aided and abetted, it's claimed, by his British partner, Ghislaine Maxwell. She does, and what kind of, what you realise with this case is, a lot of it details become confused with each other. Which case is which? Who's accusing whom of what? So Epstein, it goes back to 2005, where he was convicted on sexual offences and served prison time. But that's not connected to this, but it did open the gates to other women making allegations about him, which led to his arrest in um, 2018 uh, and and his imprisonment and where he died in prison in 2019. So she goes right back with him 
as his girlfriend. Now, some people who knew them at the time say that she was very obviously madly in love with him, but that he wasn't particularly in love with her and that that was her blind spot. Their romantic relationship ended, but she did go back, as we've said, to working for him. And that's where it all, that's where these allegations come from, is whether she was procuring young women and girls for him and knowing that he was going to sexually abuse them. And it is alleged that she knew about it, possibly participated in it, and lured those girls into thinking that everything was okay, but she knew this is what is being char- she is being charged with, that she knew what his intentions were and had agreed with him that this was what they would do to provide these, these girls for him. And when you hear the accounts from some of these girls, they're so disturbing. As an Epstein survivor, this day represents a new beginning. This is the beginning of justice, which we survivors have been seeking for decades. The lawyers have given us a voice when no one would hear our lonely cries. This day represents hope, freedom from fear, and a renewed faith in the justice system. I have waited 25 years for this day. The victory is sweet. 25 years ago, when I made my report to the FBI concerning Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell, I believed justice would be swift. Justice has been anything but swift. Yet I feel that with the arrest of Maxwell, the world is going to be a safer place. And they make, some of them make the point that they felt almost indebted to uh, Jeffrey um, because they, you know, they, these would be girls, for, you know, who wouldn't have much money. Um, and suddenly here's this very wealthy man going to help them out. And then when they're forced into a sexual act, they almost felt like, well, I, you know, did I owe him one? Did I owe him this? Yes, and that was very much part of what came out in the documentary about Epstein um, that a couple of years ago was that, and this is part of the charge against Ghislaine Maxwell, and it ties in the that her um, uh, defense counsel brings up this issue of her being a woman and uh, the the ad that she's the sca- the female scapegoat is interesting because. You could say that her femininity and the fact that she is a woman is integral to all of this because, you know, statistically fewer women are sexual predators and that we perceive women or we expect our expectation of women is that they have a more nurturing and mothering and protective instinct. And so what is being alleged is that that was what was being used to bring those women to Epstein, that it was easier for a woman to say, you know, come and meet this guy and all rather than a middle aged man approaching them where they'd go, "Ah, you know, I don't think so. This is a bit dodgy, um, is what is being alleged. In that documentary, several of the women talked about how she would draw them out on their background and their family and did they get along with their parents. And there was a common theme of often they were girls who, you know, 
were a bit vulnerable, were a bit needy, maybe didn't have someone to go home to and say something kind of weird happened today. And, you know, this is often a feature of sexual abuse and what you hear from people who are abused. So that is part of the charge against her, that as a woman, she set these these other young women up. We weren't anything important to them at all. We weren't even a human being to them. We were just another toy to be passed around. And that's what they did. Let's talk about the the trial and the kind of lead up to it, because Ghislaine essentially disappeared, didn't she? And I think this is one of the reasons why um, she has spent over 500 days in jail now is because she was essentially just a flight risk. For the first time, details about what happened when FBI agents showed up to arrest Galen Maxwell at this 156-acre New Hampshire property. Prosecutors say she tried to flee to another room in the house. Agents were ultimately forced to breach the door. Inside the home, agents say they found a cell phone wrapped in tinfoil on top of a desk, a seemingly misguided effort to evade detection from law enforcement trying to trace her phone. Yeah, I mean, she has passports, three different passports um, in her name. She speaks, I think it's four languages. She did seem to have money uh, at her disposal to escape. And there were all kinds of um, rumours while she wasn't, while they couldn't find her, um, that she, I think the best one I read was that she was in a submarine, that she actually was qualified to captain um, and the, but there were rumors that she was anywhere in the world and that's all part of this idea of her being incredibly well connected that really she had places to hide people who might feel it was in their interest to hide her that kind of thing and then when they did find her um, in New England she was living in a house which it has been reported was pay was bought for over a million dollars in cash in her name. So that has raised questions around how did that happen? Where did she get the money? Did she, was that her money? Did someone give her the money? I, you know, there is a lot in this of it's like some kind of drama you'd watch on Netflix. You know, you'd binge watch it for a couple of nights at the weekend. There is that kind of idea of it as just being sort of this exciting thing, which distracts from the sordid element of it is alleged that all these young girls, that there was a really seedy situation going on and and a ruining of people's lives. And she had this platform as well, Sarah, um, in relation to all the work she was doing on oceans. Um, Terramar is the name of the organisation she was heading up. And, you know, she she was given centre stage in the UN, TED Talks, um, uh, you know, and people were really gobbling up this this appetite from this very wealthy woman to make our seas a, a cleaner, safer place. And yet you have this almost other life going on behind the scenes. Ghislaine Maxwell would say that she didn't, this, none of this is true. She wasn't, there wasn't a dark side to all of this. She has said she believed that they were, they were adult women who were brought in, you know, worked as massage therapists for Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein, that it, they were adults and that it was 
a consensual situation. So Glenn Maxwell would say, I am a wealthy, well-connected woman who really is concerned with saving our seas. I'm here representing civil society. Um, my passion for the ocean, for those of you, there's a, there's a fly, slideshow going up there, so you, you don't just have to hear me, you can see the pictures as well. Um, started when I was a little girl. Uh, I grew up watching Jacques Cousteau on TV and became mesmerized with the oceans. It led to me becoming a deep worker, submersible pilot. And ultimately, on one of my first dives, where I went down expecting to see a, a fish, I switched on the lights at the bottom of the ocean and saw a plastic hanger. And she she vehemently denies all charges as well in this trial. Absolutely. And she, there are also two counts of perjury against Ghislaine Maxwell, which is a separate trial, which is scheduled to run after this trial. And they, that, those charges relate to a 2016 deposition that she gave in which she said, I didn't know anything about this and I... I didn't know there was any sexual abuse of going on and that as far as I knew, they were there were adults. And if this criminal case, if she is acquitted of this case, it's it's unlikely that the perjury case will go ahead. There would be an appetite to push that. So a lot hinges on this criminal case against her. And one of Jeffrey Epstein's most public accusers, Virginia Drifrey, is not involved in this criminal case. She won't be a witness. Um, and she um, has a separate civil case later uh, next year as well. So, uh, you know, her case and the perjury case very much hinge on what happens now in this criminal case, which, as you've said, is set to run for six weeks. So what we've heard, Sarah, in um, recent weeks, just just before this trial started this week, is uh, the situation of um, her living conditions in jail, for example. Um, are we are you know, is, is this orchestrated to make us feel sympathetic? I believe so. Um, uh, her brother, Ian Maxwell, has been really public in recent weeks, first of all, pointing out the the conditions which he says are inhumane. So she's um, in a cell in a Brooklyn uh, detention centre and he said that she's on a concrete bed and there's no uh, window to the, you know, getting air in. There, the, the food is mouldy, the guards treat her badly, there are rats. Of course, this is made meant to make us feel sorry for her. We know that she's suffered some kind of physical abuse because she had a black eye. I, can, I don't see Gillen administering a black eye to herself. So I'm assuming that that was dished out to her. Do you believe that your sister has been beaten by prison guards? I think she has suffered some occasional physical abuse at the hands of her guards, yes. And we're going to take it to the UN. Take it from me. I unfortunately think, or unfortunately for them, think it's not necessarily working in that, you know, as we've said already, there is a kind of thing around this where it doesn't really seem real. So it's kind of like, you know, the bad, rich characters finally getting their comeuppance. And really, there's not much appetite for going, oh, poor her, you know, she's gone from a private jet and a private island to this horrible cell. Um, so I'm not sure that has worked for them. But I think the I think their argument of kind of 
portraying her as a victim of Epstein probably is more powerful and seems to be what her her defense are going for as well. That, you know, they're A, pointing out, which is true, that she is not on trial for what he did. You know, she is not there to make reparations for, for what he is alleged to have done. And that she is there on, you know, trafficking charges and on these conspiracy charges. But she is not Epstein. And I think that what the prosecution are doing is is could be quite effective in their portrayal of a woman as being a victim of this man who did, allegedly did these bad things. And so I don't think the poor little rich girl thing is working very well, but I think the 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 woman angle could actually potentially work for them. What can we expect in the next six weeks, Sarah? I'm not asking you to have a crystal ball here or anything. Um, you know, there's all this talk of a little black book, for example. Are we going to get really explosive details? I think that if she thinks she stands any chance of being acquitted, then she would be mad to open her little black book because the people she would be spilling the beans on are the people who potentially will keep her in a life of comfort um, when she would hope all this just goes away. But I don't know if she put her back's against the wall. She just might. I think what we are going to see a lot of is discrediting of the witnesses. And it's really hard to know how that would go because you know, that may well hammer home the fact that these are real people. This allegedly was a real thing that had real consequences for these potential victims. And I think that that could be where the power lies. But her defence are, it is their job to be very confident that they can, you know, blow holes in all that um, testimony. And that was Sarah Cadden, Sunday Independent columnist. Well, I'm Siobhan McGuire, and today's episode of the Indo-Daily was presented and produced by myself, with research by Tabitha Monaghan, recorded by Gavin Hennessy, and sound design by John Smith. Archive clips from independent.ie, Court TV, Channel 4 News, Sky News, and GB News. You can listen to the Indo Daily wherever you get your podcasts.